0: Thank you for listening to this audio recording from the pastoral team at Church of the Redeemer, an Anglican church in Greensboro, North Carolina. If you would like to know more about Church of the Redeemer, its ministry, or its mission, then visit us online at RedeemerGSO.org. Well, good morning. Welcome again to Church of the Redeemer. My name is Jason Myers, and I'm really excited to be with you all this morning uh, and dive into our passage, Philippians chapter 2, uh, today. Uh, I wanted to begin, though, by talking about the importance of stories. Maybe you have an important story. Maybe it's a, a book or a movie, Lord of the Rings, Chronicles of Narnia, Harry Potter, uh, and these stories are fun, they're exciting. Certainly, Netflix has understood the importance of stories, uh, as important as they are to our lives, as they keep churning out a new movie or TV show every other day? Like every time you log on, you're like, there's another one. There's another one. Uh, we tend to be people who love stories. Well, they're like the official big stories of movies and TV shows or books, but also even of like unofficial stories. We often like to tell ourselves stories too. We tell ourselves little stories. Sometimes they're subtle and their stories may be about how everything is just getting better and better and better. The sky's the limit on these types of stories. The endless, endless possibilities. Life is just one constant upswing, and life will just continually increase and inti- continually get better. Uh, the problem with some of these stories is that uh, the ones where they keep getting better and better is that they, they don't have an endpoint or a finish line. There's no really ceiling to those stories on our expectations, on our disappointments, and there's no really profound place for failure, discomfort, or suffering with some of those stories that we share. And sometimes, we have to actively screen out failure, suffering, because it doesn't play well in that unofficial story. Sometimes, we can tell ourselves other stories about relationships. Picture this with me. You've had an argument or a conflict. What do you do? You replay the story back in your head, right? Usually, with your own narration uh, of how things went and who said what and what you would have said if you would have had some clarity in the moment. You tell yourself a story about how things ought to be. Here's the thing about stories, whether they're true or not. They profoundly shape the way we live. If we believe in a story where we are deeply unloved, that story comes to shape the world that we live in. It comes to shape the way that we interact with other people. It changes our attitudes and our goals that we have for ourselves. And that's why the truth can be so important. Because it can shatter some of those false stories that we carry around with us. Today, Paul is going to tell us a story in Philippians chapter 2. And he's going to tell us a better and truer story. And it's really the Cliff Notes version of the Gospels. So if you ever thought the Gospels were too long, Philippians 2 is is your story. Uh, Paul is going to tell the story of Jesus in seven verses. Seven verses... He will narrate this story of the Gospels. If you have your Bibles, open up to Philippians chapter 2, and we're going to begin in verse 5. These verses will also be on the screen. Paul tells this story of Jesus in two parts, and I want you to remember remember the words humiliation and exaltation. We're going to come back to those. Paul tells this story in two, two parts, but his story has a shape, right? All stories have shapes. Beginning, climax, resolution. You can kind of chart it out. Well, Paul's story has a shape, too. The first section of this passage, outside oh, sorry, the, the shape of this story is the letter V, and we're going to unpack this a little bit here. Paul's story of Jesus has this shape. The first section of the passage, if any of you are paying attention at home, this is episode three of Jason Struggles with the Microphone, so... <laughs> I'm assuming this story will have a second season, so... um. Cool. thank you And the shape of the story is actually really important. This isn't just like a preacher gimmick thing of like, oh, isn't that cool? Um, This is actually, I believe, the shape of the story that Paul tells. Now, this may come as a shock, but we don't like the shape of this story. We actually really kind of disagree with the shape of a story that looks like this. Here's the story we like. It's an image on the next screen. We like the upside-down V story. We don't like the humiliation and then the exaltation. We like an upside-down V. We like to have success, after success, after success, reach the pinnacle of our life, and then coast the rest of the way down. That's the story we like to tell ourselves, that life is just one constant upswing. We reach it, and then we ride off into the sunset. Let me show you a few different versions of this story. We'll keep that image up on the screen. Maybe for you, this is the story of your career. So entry-level, mid-level management, senior management, CEO, retire, coast. That's a story. That's a story of a career. Maybe for you, it's relationships. So it's like singleness, dating, engagement, marriage is the pinnacle, and then coasting, life happily ever after. Maybe you alternate that story just a little, yeah. As I said, Paul tells us a truer and better story. Um, Maybe you like an alternate version of that story where marriage isn't the pinnacle, but kids is the pinnacle. A happy family, a good life. Success, success. Again, Paul tells us a truer and better story. And then coast. Again, you may not have lived this story, but you might believe this story. You may say, ah, yeah, yeah, that doesn't bear out my life. But at a core level, you say, well, that's the ideal. That's what I should be striving for. Maybe this is the version of the story that we want to be true, where the inverted V, the upside-down V, has the high point of whatever we put in that pinnacle. Here's the tension with these couple stories. Our desire to live out this story, the upside-down V, is going to make it difficult to reconcile with the story that Paul tells us here. To put it bluntly, the stories go in opposite directions. And that's going to be difficult. The problem with the upside-down V story is that it takes a lot of looking after our own interests to accomplish. What Paul said in the beginning, don't look after your own interests, but for the interests of others. Two different stories. The other problem is that for Paul, this story of Jesus doesn't look anything like our ideal story. That's not his story. That's not the one he was on. His story is filled with humiliation, pain, suffering, and death. That humiliation. Let's take a look at that first part of the story. If you take a look at verses 5 and 6, Paul says your mind, your attitude should be the same as Jesus. Why? Because Jesus is the picture of what God looks like in action. This is what Paul means in verse 6 when he says who being in the very nature God. Paul's point is that when you see Jesus, you are seeing God. Further, what we see Jesus do is what God does. And so as you read through the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, these stories are imaging and describing God to to us. These are the activities of the divine. So Paul's going to take it a step further. If Jesus looks like God in action, what do we learn about God from Jesus? If Jesus looks like God, if he's God in action... What do we learn from the story of Jesus that teaches us about who God is, if they are the same person? Take a look at that second half of verse 6. Paul says, who being in the very nature of God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. This part is radical and unexpected. The second part there should have the word because, and I put it there on the screen, Jesus, because he was God, did not consider equality with God as something to be exploited. A lot of big ideas here that we need to unpack. But first, let me ask you a question. What do you think God is like? What's it like to to be God? To have Godness as part of your being? We began earlier about talking about how important stories are. And another story we share is the story we tell ourselves about God, about who he is, what he's up to, and what he's doing. Perhaps we live with a story about how there may be a God, but he's out there somewhere doing God-type things, but he's largely not concerned with what we do down here. This is the story of the absent God, the God that left, the God that walked away. That's a story we can tell. Maybe our story is a little bit different. Maybe your story of God is a little bit more angry. A little bit more violent. This story runs along the lines of God makes demands. He wants something. And if we don't give God what he wants, he'll punish us. He'll throw lightning bolts down from heaven or something. Boil it down, and this story of God is actually pretty selfish. And this God is definitely vindictive. He lashes out when mistreated. Do what he wants or else is the story we may tell ourselves about God. Paul's story of God here is radical and unexpected. Paul says because of Jesus, we know God isn't like any of those previous stories we tell ourselves about him. God isn't an exploiting type of God. God isn't selfish. The word that Paul uses here, used to his own advantage or to exploit, means to take, to seize, or to grasp. To use someone or something for your own ends. We know this word. Because that's what we sometimes do. We use things for our own benefit. Paul says that Jesus, being God, did not consider that something to be used to his own advantage. What does equality with God look like? For Paul, equality with God means not taking, but giving. Not pride, but humility. Not selfishness, but self-giving. This is the very nature of God. God isn't selfish. This God, the eternal self-giving, others-focused person. Seizing, taking, and exploiting are the opposite of God's character. That's not who he is. And Jesus puts that on full display in his life and death, and his resurrection. Jesus lays down his rights. As Paul says in verse 7, God became a servant. The all-powerful became the powerless one giving up all those advantages, not using them for his own ends. Remember the shape of the story. We're halfway down that slope. Jesus giving up, humbling himself. In the story of Jesus, God reached low to our position of humanity. But that's not the bottom yet. Paul goes further in verse 8. Paul says in verse 8 that the course of the humility of Jesus doesn't stop on him just becoming human, taking on flesh and bone, the true humility of Jesus goes all the way to the cross. This humbling, this radical self humbling. Where he takes on the most shameful activity in the ancient world, crucifixion. This is the epicenter of the story for Paul. And this is the unexpected part of the story is that God's character is shown through this weakness, through this humility, through this giving up. Not through an exercise of power, strength, Rights. Maybe that's what we would expect God to do, right? God can do those things because He's God. God can be selfish if He wants to be. That's God's prerogative. Paul's story here radically challenges that and says if we learn anything from Jesus, it means that God is not selfish, He's looking out for others. This is the scandal of the cross, the scandal of the gospel, and the scandal of our Christian community that God's character is shown through weakness and humility and not power and strength. So Paul is speaking to these Jesus followers living in Philippi, an ancient city in modern-day Greece, and he says, be like Jesus. Have this mind in you that was also in Christ Jesus. Think, be, act, do like Jesus would do. Be weak, be humble, be shamed. Inhabit that story. That's how we bear out God's image. Embody the story of Jesus in the cross. That is a radically unexpected story to be invited into. Because again, it goes against the grain of our stories we tell ourselves. I do think one encouraging aspect about the story of Jesus is that it allows us to have a profound place for suffering in our lives. Maybe you find yourself in a season of suffering right now. You've been humbled or brought low. Maybe you feel like you've been running on empty, running on fumes for a while now. What if it's through this very suffering that God is revealing himself to you? What if it isn't the absence of failure or the absence of suffering where we learn the most about God's character, but through those very things? What if our co-suffering with Christ is God's way of telling a better story through us? As his spirit empowers us to live faithfully amid disappointment, suffering, and humility. What if that provides a better window into the story of God than our triumph or our joy? That is one of the things I think we learn from this radical story of Jesus. All right, back to Paul's mini story. He continues on in verse 9. Here comes the part of the story that we may like a little better. This is the ascent, right? On the V pattern, this is that ascending part. But don't miss Paul's connection with what came before. Paul in verse 9 says, Therefore... As a result of Jesus obediently, suffering himself, um, obediently humbling himself to death, God exalted him. The exaltation of Jesus comes after his suffering. Exaltation is the second stage. And this passage has a completely different feel to it. It strikes a tone of triumph. But notice that the triumph only comes after the humiliation. It's the opposite of how we usually like it. As a result of Jesus humbling himself, Paul says that God highly exalted him by giving him a name. The name that God gives Jesus is the name Lord. Remember, he received the name Jesus at his birth. A couple weeks ago, we celebrated that. God gives him the name Lord. As Christians, we confess Jesus is Lord. And the, the that Lord title helps explain what Paul says next in the next couple verses. Because he's Lord, because he was obedient unto death... Every knee bows and every tongue confesses that he is Lord, the rightful ruler of the world. That's what the term Lord means. Who's in charge? But more importantly, why is this name important? What's in a name? Sure, it's great that Jesus has ultimate power in the name Lord, but why would this be important for those in Philippi or us? Is it just a box we check. The Philippians wouldn't have missed some of the political ramifications of this title. In first century Philippi, Jesus wasn't the only one being called Lord. There was another person taking on that title, and that was a guy named Nero, who was the Emperor of Rome. They both liked that title for themselves. They put it on inscriptions, they put it on statues, they put it on coins. Nero is Lord. How do you know? Look around. They would say in first century Philippi. Who's running the world? Who's the most powerful, strong person we know of? Nero. He is Lord. And so for Paul to write a line like this in the first century was deeply subversive of that world. It would have made some people angry since it challenged some of the prevailing stories going around in the first century about who was really Lord of the world, who was really in charge. Who was running the show? And what a contrast of Lord's, right? Jesus as Lord versus Nero. Nero offered offered a completely different story, a completely different paradigm. The story of Nero was might makes right. I have the power. I get to do what I want. He was arrogant, rich, greedy, taking and grabbing whatever he could, using violence and force to get his way, oppressing others, only seeking his own advantage? The emperor, by many ways, was the most powerful, strong figure that people looked to to deliver them from their problems. And what a contrast when Paul says, your savior is not that guy, but a humble, beaten, crucified lord. Don't trade one lord for another. Paul might say the same to us today as well. The way of Jesus is radically different than the leaders of our world. And Jesus tells us the better and truer story. Paul's story here conveys the heart of the Christian faith and a crucified, risen, but vindicated Lord. If it's true for Jesus, Paul wants us to see how it needs to be true for us too. If you've been a Christian for any amount of time or at least hanging out with some Christians, you'll probably hear the language of being Christ-like. Like, I don't know man, I'm just working on my walk with Christ. I want to be Christ-like or Christ-like. And you're like, what in the world? Why do all these people want to be like Christ? The story here is what that means. What does it mean to be Christ-like? Being Christ-like is refocused here on the cross and the humbling, suffering death of Christ for the sake of others. This is what Paul means when he says, have this mind in you. Orient yourselves around this story rather than other stories we tell ourselves If we are to conform to the image of Christ, if that's the goal, we now have an image to pattern ourselves after. This is what that looks like. Being like Christ means looking at our life, our family, and our community and asking, how do I empty myself? How do I humble myself? And how do I become obedient to God for the sake of others? How do I humble myself? How do I empty myself? And how do I become obedient to God for the sake of someone else? Christ sets the pattern for us. Paul intended that the habits and patterns of the story of Jesus to become the story of us towards one another. Paul wants Jesus' story to become our story. So that raises the question, what does it look like for the story of Jesus to become the story of us? One of the profound ways this happens is that this story causes us to look outward and not inward. If what it means to be Christ-like is that we don't look to our own rights or privileges, we look out for the lives of others. The shape of the story causes us to look at what God has given us, time, resources, talents, our car, our apartment, our home, and say, how can I use what God has given me for the sake of others? Rather than grasping to gain more, in our jobs, and our relationships? How can I serve the people that God has placed me in community with? Instead of grasping, how do we become people who give? This would certainly radically change our approach to what we do here, to church. How do we give our time, our resources, and our talents to serve the body of Christ here at Redeemer? It gets kind of awkward. What vacation might we cancel to help fund someone else to go to camp. But you might say, well, no, 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 like, I, I worked all year for that. I've worked hard. I deserve that. Jesus says, don't use those things for your own advantage. Look to the sake of others. What spare bedroom might we give up to host a fellow next year? How might we make room at our tables for people to gather? How do I serve? How do I help? How do I reorient my life in such a way that it's all for the sake of others? The story of God is one that perpetually reaches out to the other, and it's meant to be our story. Some of you do serving and hospitality amazingly well, and you set such a great example for many of us. For others, this can be really, really hard. Some of us have been part of this community for a while and seen hospitality in action, but it's failed to move us to be a more hospitable and giving people. If this is really hard for you, and it's okay if it is, can I suggest it might be because a different story is in operation? What story drives our lack of giving and hospitality? Maybe it's simply new news, but maybe it's the story of fear and scarcity, that I won't have enough, so i got to look out for my own and you're going to get yours, and I'm going to get mine. I'm just going to take care of my own little home here. It's a different story than the abundant story we get in the story of God and Jesus. Can I move you to ask God to give you a spirit of hospitality, a spirit of giving, to be so saturated by this story of Jesus that a shift happens, that maybe you look back on January 2019 and say, okay, that was the season where things changed where I had a little shift of focus. As we conclude, I think we can ask this question to begin to reorient our lives. And this could be a scary question. How do I empty myself? How do I humble myself? How do I become obedient to God for the sake of others? That question will fundamentally alter the trajectory of our lives, of our stories. Students, how might our schools, cafeterias, and classrooms change if we had this mindset? Parents and children, scary idea, right? Going to upend some of those stories we tell ourselves about ourselves and our kids and kids about our parents. But how do we practice emptying ourselves, humbling ourselves, and being obedient to God for the sake of our families? Maybe you're in a relationship, dating or married. How do we practice emptying, humbling, and becoming obedient to God for the sake of others? Might this be the life-giving thing that our relationship needs? What about those of us in an established career? You're past entry level, you're set, you're in there. Maybe you're a grandparent, maybe you're retired. How does this stage of life, with certainly new challenges and new opportunities, through extra time or resources? How can we look at this stage of life and say, how do I empty myself? How do I humble myself? How do I become obedient to God for the sake of others? Maybe this is the prayer we need to have with God this week and ask him to reveal to us areas where the story of Jesus can become the story of us. Each week we celebrate something. We come to a table And we celebrate this most beautiful, unexpected story in the table. Where we take the bread and the wine and we celebrate a God who made himself low for us. We honor and lift up Jesus as Lord. And the table, the Eucharist, embodies that unexpected story. And it also offers us an invitation to join. And so that's what we celebrate each week. We also recite the story of Jesus in the creed that we say week in and week out, where we remind ourselves of the story that God has told us. And so if you would stand with me and recite the creed.